but the phrases. Sleazy instruments, half taught, half baked ideas. you did, <laughs> The window was open, outside was a spaceship. It took off into the sky, leaving a trail of smoke behind it. Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, and today we are carrying on with our in-depth exploration into Press to Play, the 1986 release from Ya Boy, Paul McCartney. Like I said, this is part two. Go back and check out part one if you haven't already, where we go through, through the album's production, its reception, and McCartney's general life around that time. And now for the second instalment, as always, me and a guest will be tackling the album itself, song by song, praise by praise, and perhaps with this album in particular, Criticism by Criticism. Now, after the last episode where me and Ken Michaels tried to talk about an album, we ended up having just this wild digressionary chit-chat about anything seemingly other than Pipes of Peace. And so today I thought it'd be best to have him back on where we could both do our damnedest to stay on topic and keep the show moving forward full of informative and insightful content. 
Thankfully, he was more than up for that. I'm sure you all know Ken Michaels already, but if you don't, you can find all of the links to his stuff down below. You can check out his podcast, which is where I first got in touch with him, which is The Things We Said Today. Check out their recent interview with Kosh on their Fantastic Abbey Road episode. That one is one that me and my friends have been talking about for a while recently. You can check out his recent video cast with other Beatles author alumni, which is Talk More Talk. Again, links down below. And you can also find, well, I'm sure many of our American listeners will know him already for his widely released radio show, which is Every Little Thing. And just off air, he, he gave me a little bit of tidbit information, actually, that he's coming up this November to a absolutely incredible milestone in his career, which is the recording of his two thousandth radio show i cannot believe it that is incomprehensible that much content as a you know especially for a, a guy like me who can seemingly barely put out an episode every two weeks ladies and gentlemen <laughs> please welcome back to paul or nothing mr ken michaels ken how you doing man what's going on i'm fine hello sailor sam how are you doing I'm not sure if I've if I've told you that, but that was an idea that I was going to have. Where literally every episode I was going to refer to myself as Sailor Sam from Birmingham. Yeah. But every time I told someone that, they just mocked me into the ground, and I, you know, a lot of those people barely let me get away with the title Paul or nothing. So I wasn't I wasn't going to argue the point of Sailor Sam. Okay, I thought you were given a gift there. I mean, I would I would use it. I would abuse it. If we ever get to speak to Denny, definitely, you know, I'll say the sound from Birmingham, you know, you know what I mean, Denny, you know. <laughs> but until that time, we are going to discuss press to play. We are going to stick to the format. We're going to do this properly. We are professional broadcasters, you especially so, having done 2,000 shows now. Congratulations on that. When's that going to be um, coming out? That's mid-November. Mid-November. The thing is, it's it's a combination of all the different shows that I've done. It's not like it's 2,000 Every Little Thing shows. It's a combination mm-hmm. of that, Things We Said Today, uh, Talk More Talk. Um, I did short features on XM Radio, Beatle mm-hmm. News, and Beatle Breaks. And it also includes my guest appearances on other shows like yours. You're, oh. part, of my, you're part of my 2,000, Sam. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, this show will be another notch on that bedpost. I I am very honoured to be amongst such uh, titans there. That feels very heartwarming indeed. Now, as you know, I normally start these interviews off with the kind of laying of the ground and the the, uh, basic Beatle questions. Anyone who would like to know Ken's answers, go back and check out our digressional general chit-chat about Pubs of Peace and many other things. So today we can crack on with the album in earnest, as it were. Uh, Press to Play would have been the second album that came out during your initial career in Beatles media. What were your initial thoughts on the album? What What do you remember most most strikingly about that time when it was released? Uh, first of all, I, when I when I started doing Beatles programs, it was when Tug of War came out. Mm-hmm. So that would have been my fourth. Oh, I'm, I'm, oh God, I'm going to have to edit that, aren't I? It was your fourth Beatles album that came out. Yeah, and I just remember at that time, it was the mid-80s. I was on rock radio. I was on a radio station in New Jersey, WDHA, where I did, well, 10 years of shows, 500 shows on the Beatles. And interest in McCartney was starting to wane, I think, generally. 
at that time. I distinctly remember the program director that I worked for back then, the first of five at that radio station, when uh, No More Lonely Nights first came out. And I was just glowing about that song. I thought it was such a perfect ballad and everything. And uh, I asked my program director what he thought about the song. And he said, ah, McCartney's going adult contemporary. (laughs) And, you know, there are a lot of people who miss the rocker Paul, the band on the run, Jet, Junior's Farm, Paul. And in the 80s, he was doing more poppy stuff Mm. and the duets with Stevie Wonder and Michael Jackson and So Bad was a single over here. And so you were missing a lot of the rockers of Paul. And so he was kind of slipping, I think, when it came to rock radio in particular. And I also think there was a little bit of um, fatigue, Beatle fatigue at the time coming from. And this is from my own perspective, mm-hmm. what I what I observed from Lennon's death being covered so heavily the Beatles compilations that came out in the early 80s, 20 Greatest Hits and Real Music, didn't perform as well as, say, rock and roll music did. Mm. You know, Love Songs actually wasn't that successful. But, you know, I think there was some Beatle fatigue at that point. And um, McCartney was still getting decent airplay at the time, especially on MTV. But there wasn't that much excitement about Press to Play. I remember when Press came out as a single, and a lot of people were just, you know, they either loved it or they hated it. I really loved it. I thought Paul was embracing the new sounds of the time. But, you know, this is part of the conversation that you have on Beatle Podcasts, and I guess a lot of music podcasts where you have veteran artists and whether or not you admire them for trying to put out something different that reflected the production of the time or do you admire more artists who stick to their guns and are consistent with more of the same stuff and um i think a lot of people were, were just down on mccartney around that time mm-hmm. you know it got some good reviews i remember and there was a lot of excitement revolving around the song angry i remember you know a lot of, uh, really reports. <laughs> yeah okay because you, you heard there, there was a rumor that the song was directed at john mm which was never confirmed by Paul at all. But the fact that Paul and Pete Townsend and Phil Collins, who was, you know, the hottest thing on the planet at that moment, they were all, you know, on the same song there. So that was generating some buzz before the album came out. But I didn't see any kind of real um, staying power with the album, despite the fact that I find it one of his still most satisfying and interesting albums of his career. But I didn't, I didn't sense overall in the music industry that people were really uh, digging this new album from him. I get that. And it seems to be almost a, the perfect Venn diagram of bad situations for Paul. Because throughout this show, there have been albums where I might not have liked the concept, but the execution was very good. Or I may really have liked what the album was kind of going for, like something like Back to the Egg, but maybe the execution and the landing didn't quite stick. Whereas here, it seems like for a lot of people, myself included, for the, for the most part, they, they don't seem to like the idea of him going down that contemporary adult avenue and they don't seem to like the overall outcome either. And it seems like, especially with a certain fatigue as well coming in at that point it just seems like the perfect uh, like zenith like all of this had been building and so many things that you know you'd think that by this point McCartney was too big to fail which he is now 
in 2019, he is now too big to fail. His next album will still get to number four in the charts on both sides across across the sea. I don't doubt that. But here, it just seems like a natural ebb and flow has happened. And it had to happen eventually, but it was never going to happen with Tug of War because that was the post-Lennon one and people were excited after Wings. Pops of Peace had Michael Jackson. But here, I don't see much of, much of a selling point, I, you know. I'd hate to be the publicist for this album, you know. It's got a black and white photograph from George Hurrell looking like a 1930s still. It's got an adult contemporary sound which doesn't reflect that album cover at all. They've taken the, a terrible cut of Pretty Little Head and released that as a single for some reason. And it, it just seems like everything's going wrong. It's not a comedy of errors. I'm not, like, you know, glad and gleeful that the album didn't do well. Of course, I want everything of Paul's to reach a wider an audience as possible. But I don't disagree with people when they say that they don't like this album, that it doesn't, you know, reach expectations. And I do find myself struggling to ardently defend it. It's not even on, you know, in the same league as, say, the soft spot I had for Red Rose Speedway, which is a ramshackle of an album as well. And I don't see myself having a 180 turn like I have with, say, Wildlife, where I really did not like that album at first, and now it's one of my most cherished. I see Press to Play remaining in its lower 25% of Paul McCartney albums for the foreseeable future. Well, I think you and I, this will be a fascinating uh, conversation here because... We completely disagree. You think I'm afraid oh, of you, Ken? Of I'm t- two thousand <laughs> episodes. You think you can boss me about? I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> Bring it on! Bring it on! I'm ready for this. Now, first of all, I just want to uh, mention that you know what exactly is success in this day and age? I mean, what's more important, where an album uh, peaks on the charts, or what kind of staying power it has? Now, I happen to love Egypt Station a lot. Mm-hmm. And it debuted at number one in America on the Billboard charts. It was the first number one album he's had since Tug of War. Yeah. And the only time he's ever debuted at number one, at number one with an album. But it was on the album charts, the top 200 charts, for five weeks. That's it. And what tends to happen is, in this day and age, the real hardcore fans run out and buy it as soon as it comes out. And because radio will barely play any of his new music... It has no staying power. So would you rather have an album that made number one like Tug of War did, but stayed on the charts for half a year? Or would you rather have one that, you know, it's still impressive, don't get me wrong, to have a number one album at his age after all these years. And uh, But because radio barely touches his new stuff, as they barely touch any veteran artist, that whether or not radio... Whether the artist gets radio airplay determines the staying power of albums and where they stay on the charts. That is, of course, if you still think radio matters, which is a whole other topic. But no, I happen to think that Press to Play is, uh, it's well, it's my second favorite McCartney album of all time. And it's right behind <laughs> Flowers. Oh my, okay. Carry on, carry yes. on, carry on. Okay, sorry, I've had to process that for a moment. Okay. It's, First of all, the thing that I love most about Paul, probably the most, is just how diverse he is as an artist. And he can just do almost any style of music there is. And I happen to feel that he does them all pretty well. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of people misunderstand this period in Paul's career as though it was a time when he was um, 
really at a loss for what to do with with his music because I think throughout the entire 70s, the big difference between his music back then, apart from the fact that he had a band, was that he produced all of his albums. Mm -hmm. And with the exception of George Martin helping out here and there and Chris Thomas sharing production duties on Back to the Egg, then McCartney went back to uh, McCartney 2, produced that, and then he relied on his old friend George Martin for three albums. And now, are you going to go back to producing everything all by yourself? You know, music is changing. What are you going to do? So he started looking around for different producers and, you know, what would make the best sense. And Hugh Padgham at the time was one of the hottest producers in the business, working with the police, working with Genesis, working with the solo releases of Sting and Phil Collins and people like that. And so he went to, to Hugh Padgham to work on this album, although it started off being Eric Stewart. And so you have more, some of the traditional Paul is on here, Footprints, Only Love Remains, mm -hmm. those songs. And then you've also got more of the 80s techno sound, like Talk More Talk or Pretty Little Head, those songs. Mm -hmm. You have a mixture of that. And I love the fact that you listen to a song like Pretty Little Head, and he's never done a song that sounds quite like that. Although you could say the beginnings of this more experimental stuff from Paul in his solo career, you could go back to, you know, McCartney too, if you want to. Mm -hmm. But I love when Paul experiments. I love when he tries doing different things. I don't want him to keep repeating the same formula over and over and over again. And even though in the 70s, you can find some differences between Red Rose Speedway, Venus and Mars, Wings at the Speed of Sound, those albums, um, he experimented so much more and became more of an artist on his own, I feel. And rather than relying on George Martin to help him out, now he's stepping out, now he's working with different producers, and I think the producers in his solo career have had more of an influence on his music in many ways than the musicians on his records. And I think a lot of that started with Press to Play. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been, for the most part, a renaissance period for him from Press to Play on. I'm not saying every single album is great since Press to Play, but I tend to think that he's more experimental, he's more diverse than ever before, he does so many different things, even you could say the... Um, the first two Fireman albums, <laughs> you know, there's nothing else like that in McCartney's catalog. Uh, all that transient stuff that he was doing then. I love when he does all this because at the same time, I kind of despise the reputation that Paul has for being Mr. Mainstream. You know, a lot of people who don't know all the different things that Paul does, if you really study it song for song, his music is virtually all over the place. You know, you hear so much about Beatle fans who like to comment on what John Lennon said about Paul writing granny music and certain songs like When I'm 64 and Honey Pie and Your Mother Should Know. I think they just show how much greater a songwriter he is that he can do those things and do them well. That's the great thing about exploring Paul's career in general. The same guy that wrote Helter Skelter can write We All Stand Together. They're two completely different songs, two oh, yeah. completely different voices, but it's the same guy. And you never know from album to album what Paul's going to give you stylistically. 
And like I said, I do believe that the producers he works with have, have quite an influence on the way his albums come out. But ultimately, Paul always has the final say, too. But I love the direction that Paul took with Press to Play. And I think because of the fact that he got a backlash from that, and there's a lot of Beatle fans out there that love the 60s and 70s and didn't embrace music <laughs> that followed that, uh, I think that's part of the problem right there. I never had a problem with 80s music. You know, I always loved the 70s the most, but I never had a problem with most of the music that came out of the 80s, the heavy drum sounds, the synthesizers, mm. which were part of it. It wasn't all of it. Mm. But I really hate when people say, and I think we covered this when we did the show on Pipes of Peace, is that uh, I, I don't believe any of this, this music is dated and this music is not, or that has no bearing as to what I think about whether I'm, whether or not I like the music itself, hmm. because um, there's a lot of people who think early Beatles music is dated, and I'm still going to love that music just the same. Hmm. So when people look at the 80s and they, they hear all the, the heavy drums and the synthesizers and stuff like that, and they don't like, I don't know, Tears for Fears, or they don't like A Flock of Seagulls, or any of that, I still love that music the same as I always did. And that music never leaves me. It's not like uh, I listened to it in the 80s and I haven't since. I hear that music all the time. And if it's a constant in your life, then it's never really dated. Oh, yeah. No, um, people do treat this period like Paul McCartney's doing Devo or something. Like, he's not doing that. Don't worry. It's not that 80s. People don't have to worry that much. You know, the way some people talk about this album, you think that the sound would reach near parodic levels of 80s tat and it really doesn't as you say the root mccartney is there and it's still far more palatable than i thought even my sensitive tastes would be used to and when you were talking about beatle fans always going on about granny music have they have they not listened to what's the new mary jane you know <laughs> lennon wrote absolute gobshite like that as well and mccartney did it a lot better Let's just face it, perhaps Lennon could possibly have been a little bit jealous that he couldn't write these show hall tunes that everyone would instantly remember. You know, he could write something like Instant Karma that would have that same appeal, but it's not It's not a family song in that way. You can't play it in the living room on the old grand piano, which something like Martha My Dear or When I'm 64 easily can, which is yeah. the beauty of those songs. And uh, just touching on talking about producers and their effect on McCartney... I do like the idea that Press to Play is almost like, you could be seen as the first proper McCartney album in his solo career, in the sense that he's he is finally on his own at this point. He's finished with Wings, which was band number two, and then George Martin's there just to kind of give him a little nudge out the door, like Gandalf and Bilbo. He's just helping him along, along the road, along to a proper solo career, and now he's like, right, I'm going to make my own decisions. And the decisions he makes, on paper, in hindsight, none of them are bad decisions. Paul going, yeah, I want the guy from Synchronicity. That's not a bad idea at all. That sounds like a very shrewd move. Oh, okay, we're going to get Paul, the hottest producer going. It definitely worked with Greg Kirsten, you know. Let's get Paul, the Adele guy. That's a genius idea, and it's worked flawlessly. So, yeah, like you say, a lot of it does come down to taste, and... In recent light of the 80s coming into a serious amount of vogue and fashion in recent years, it is strange how Press to Play hasn't had a bit of a revisionist, you know, perspective. 
It's probably the most polarizing album in Paul McCartney's catalog. Oh yeah, no, no. Like I, I nearly fell off my chair when you said it was your second favorite favorite album, and um, I'm not even going to get into Flowers in the, in the Dirt at the moment because that is another album that I'm not particularly fond of at the moment. Um, That's okay. That's my favorite. You know yeah. that. Yeah. Although I like My Bro Face. It's a Beatles song. It's a really good Beatles song. <laughs> I love Put It There. That's a fantastic little little McCartney number. In the way that I love Footprints from this album, and. Oh, this one, I was like, oh my gosh, this is insanely good. Just a basic melody in that. I was like, oh, this is this is peak Paul. This is this is him doing it in that effortless, oh, I had a dream. I dreamt up the melody to yesterday. It, it felt of that, of, the, of that tear for me. But the rest of it, you know, I'm looking even more favorably towards this album, if I'm honest, in terms of overall, overall quality. Oh, and Flowers in the Dirt, let's just get this out of the way. Another terrible album cover. The color palette on that album colour is like congealed blood and mud and vinegar and oh I, I find it very off-putting in, indeed i don't know i don't think too much about album covers despite a recent show i just did i know yeah <laughs> but um you know I, I care about the music really and by the way since you mentioned press to play his album cover i always kind of felt like he was maybe copying john with double fantasy I mean, it's 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 the married couple, their headshots in black and white, you know. So that's what I thought of when I saw the front cover of Press to Play. Yeah, I always thought that that uh, Ram would have had a cover of Paul and Linda. The actual cover for Press to Play with the um, the bootleg, the uh, sessions, which uh, features an, an alternate shot where they're looking just straight into the lens and they're just smiling like normal people. I think it's a much better photo. But that appeals more to my gooey, lovey-dovey sensibilities. Like, I'd, rather than them kind of like looking like, oh, Paul, what, whatever am I to do? Like, you know, she's swooning for him, and he's like, oh, oh, my sweet Linda. In that kind of, it's just cheesy, and you know that it was not going to resonate with the youth of the day, which goes completely against what Paul should have been doing. He should have just gotten Peter Seville and just asked for a, a rip-off Joy Division album cover in, in, instead. And I think that would have gone much better along with, along with having Hugh Padgham and having that together. The press music video, great. The Pretty Little Head music video, great. Maybe change the mix used for it. But that all together could have been a, a brand new look for Paul. But instead, he literally looks like something your grandma would listen to. Like, it literally looks like granny music, that cover. And I can see that just subliminally with, with the youth of the, of the day who would, correct me if I'm wrong here, Ken, they would have to go to the shop and look at the album cover before they bought it. I've only heard of oh, this. Yes. I've, only ever heard, <laughs> I've only heard reports of this. I've never seen it personally, but, you know, they'd have to go and look at the album cover and I could see people picking up the album cover and going, no, thank you. No, thank you. I don't, I don't want this. I, I think that you're probably right in some aspects there. Not that I observed fans picking it up, doing it, but um, I want to ask you a question since so many things that you say here just makes me want to respond right back. Same to you as well. I'm meant to like write things down like, Ken's made this point, Ken's made that point. Okay. <laughs> You, you said Press to Play was the first proper solo album. You don't consider Tug of War, Pipes of Peace solo albums just because George Martin produced it. And do you hear a difference between a solo McCartney record and, and a Wings record? 
Is it all Paul McCartney to you? Well, if we're going by the polls I put on the Twitter, no. I will split Wings into a separate thing, Beatles into a separate thing. I'm not going to be a dickhead and say Ram is Paul McCartney, Linda McCartney. We'll put that under Paul McCartney. We'll put McCartney 2 under Paul McCartney. Then I kind of have a little separate section just in my own head, Ken, called Paul McCartney and George Martin phase, which is which is uh, Tug, Pipes and Broad Street. Those three together are a little microcosm of the chrysalis of the Paul McCartney butterfly that is about to emerge from Press to Play. And, you know, it's not the most graceful birth, but it is Paul on his own, doing it on his own properly. And when I say that this is the first true McCartney album, I guess I'm saying that whilst we saw the diversity of structure and style of that we see in the prototypical classic Macca album back in Tug of War, but here... Somehow, despite all the fracas between Hugh Padgham and Eric Stewart and those major players on this album, the overall weight of responsibility still rests firmly on Paul's shoulders. And I always find it exciting when Paul has his back against the wall because that's when he produces his best material. I put McCartney 2 as the solo album literally because it is that. It is just mad Professor McCartney on his own. And just to go off on a little tangent, but that is the sound that I wish he kind of had gone more for. When he'd gone solo again, it probably would have been nice for him to do these grand George Martin experiences, do Broad Street, do something so massive, you know, the film and the writing and everything like that, and then go back to the farm and go, check, my machine, two, you know. (laughs) That would have been brilliant. I would have been so happy with that. Um, I am sure Paul knows that I want him to do McCartney 3, and he knows he's never going to do it just to annoy me. I I wish he would do that too. It would be so good. You don't need youth. You don't need to do twin freaks. Just just give Paul a little MIDI keyboard and garage band and lock him in a caravan for three weeks, you know. We'll get some great music from that. Uh-huh. Well, you never know with him. What do you count as McCartney, then? Do you do you count it all? I mean, do you count Beatles as McCartney tunes as well? Oh, it's all... <laughs> I look at the Beatle and Solo Beatle catalogue as all one big body of work. It's all one long thread. So it's like they're post-Beatle contracts, you know. It's all it's all still Beatles, whether it's Beatles or not, whether whether they've recorded together or not. It's still Beatle lore, as it were. Well, the thing is, in particular, I think of John, Paul, and George as three of the greatest songwriters of all time. I think Ringo's made some great strides as a songwriter, but he's not on the level of the other three as a songwriter. Mm. But I look at all the songs as belonging to the songwriters first. So Here, There, and Everywhere is a Paul McCartney song with the Beatles backing him up. And Helen Wheels is a Paul McCartney song with Linda and Denny backing him up. You know, it's still Paul McCartney songs no matter how you look at it. So, you know, because I think so much of them as songwriters. And not only that, but it's, it's so debatable. I know a lot of people have a dividing line between the group and the solo, but if you can consider songs like Yesterday to be a Beatles song when there's only one Beatle on it and one Beatle who wrote it and the other Beatles had nothing whatsoever to do with it, or you have uh, similar songs like Julia, for example, which is just John, or you have songs that have two Beatles, like mm-hmm. The Ballad of John and Yoko. Does it have to be all four Beatles to be a Beatles recording? You know? Why are certain songs like those? Why is Yesterday and Julia, The Ballad of John and Yoko, why is it called Beatles when you don't have all four Beatles on them? So if you've got a lot of songs throughout the solo careers of the Beatles that have one, two, or three Beatles, 
it's not like I call it all Beatles, mm. obviously, because it's um, the chemistry of the Beatles and what they brought to their music that made them Beatles recordings. But at the same time, you do have a lot of individual works that are just called Beatles. Some people look at the White Album as, you know, it was splintering so much and John would be in one studio doing one song and Paul would be in another studio doing another song. You know, it, it wasn't as cohesive as a band and yet it's still called the Beatles. No matter how you how you look mm -hmm. at it, that's the that's the name on the record. So to me, uh, on the one hand, it's all one long continuous thread, one long body of work, and yet I do separate Paul McCartney solo from Wings. It's still Paul McCartney. It's still it's still all one catalog, and yet it's separate. If that makes any sense, you know. Well, the biggest proponent of that is Paul McCartney himself, because when you go to a gig of his. It's called Paul McCartney, and it will feature Paul McCartney. It will feature Wings. It will feature Solo Paul. It will feature Paul doing duets with anyone from his entire career. And it's all just under the same, I, I nearly used the word brand there, but I, I, I shivered in my skin there. But it all comes un, under, that, under that same blanket, like, like you say. Like, But there is a new character in the mix for this album. Not a new character. He was he was introduced a couple of films ago in a in a cameo role, shall we say? But he's being brought brought to the forefront for a, a team up special here in yeah. the form of Eric Stewart. Mm -hmm. Before we dive right in, are, are you much of a, a 10CC fan? I really only know their hits. Mm -hmm. I haven't gone deep into their catalog. What I have heard, I like. I really wish I explored their music much more. What I have heard, I really do enjoy. I mean, I'm not in love as a classic and the things we do for love and Dreadlock Holiday I like a lot. And of course, there's the classic Life as a Minestrone. But uh, <laughs> no, whatever I've heard by 10CC, I like. And I do happen to feel, and I certainly wish that Paul had done a lot more work with Eric Stewart as a songwriter because I love yes. their collaborations. He is so overlooked in Paul McCartney's career. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes Paul, unfortunately, has a tendency to look at the album sales, and if something doesn't work, then you move on to working with someone else. I, you yeah. know, if um, if Press to Play had been a number one album and people had praised his work with Eric Stewart, he probably would have continued doing a little bit more work, um, mm. just like he did a little bit more work with Elvis Costello. Even though those albums didn't chart as high, they certainly got critical praise flowers in the dirt was praised certainly certainly the the collaboration between paul and elvis was but not much was said at all about paul and eric stewart which is a shame you know there is a big a through line it's stevie wonder michael jackson eric stewart elvis casello there is this obvious through line but whenever people just talk about the 80s collaborations it pretty much ends with michael jackson no one ever talks about them and maybe it's because they're not as prominent on the recordings and they're not doing as many shared lead vocals and stuff like that. And yeah, maybe to the untrained ear, you will be forgiven. But you will see Eric Stewart's name plastered all over the inner sleeve for Press to Play. It's McCartney Stewart, McCartney Stewart, McCartney Stewart, McCartney Stewart. Mm -hmm. And you are, I was quite overwhelmed by that when after I listened to it a couple of times, I was like, OK, let's 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 start breaking down the numbers here. And it is a, a split in credits that I am sure made Denny Lane go into cardiac arrest when he first read it. I was like, oh my, <laughs> oh my God. Denny was whiling away in those McCartney sulfur mines for 10 years. 
and he, you know, sold the rights to Mull of Kintyre for 83 pence or something like that, according to Jeffrey Giuliano. I'm sure it's all spurious. But Eric Stewart is, as basically, he's done a bit of support work on Tug of War. He's done a bit of support work on Pirates of Peace, lending some fantastic harmonies, the underrated post-Wings harmonies that a lot of uh, deep-cut McCartney fans always attest to. And they are stellar. They are really good. That. Um, mm. And Linda is much more polished in this period as well, which no one ever talk, talks about as well. Uh, maybe they're giving her more stuff. Like, you know, when Paul writes a song for Ringo, he'll write within his range. Maybe Paul is more experienced in doing that for Linda now. And he's he's not making her do the backup for every single rocker that he does. Mm. But Stuart's presence on this album, I thought was a breath of fresh air, actually. And it does add a different texture to the album that I was not entirely expecting. A lot of the guitar licks and a, lot, and a lot of the progressions and a lot of the kind of throaty, thrusty parts of the album did feel like there, there was an input not only from a producer trying just to beef things up, but there was a guy in the studio going, "Now, nah, Paul, let's just do it like this instead. And there was definitely ideas bouncing off someone. It wasn't just Paul kind of going, all right, we're going to do it this, this way. Everyone, one, two, three, and go. Right. There's a definite collaborative feel on this album that I haven't felt since something like Back to the Egg, really, where where Paul's work was was working with new artists. It 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 definitely doesn't feel like the Paul McCartney show, and it's a bit of a shame that Stuart's not really on on the front cover with Paul. Um, it does seem like that this would have been the opportunity for that. Maybe, like you say, if they had done another another one together, that that would have happened though. Elvis Costello doesn't end up on the cover for Flowers in the in in the Dirt either. But Ken Michaels doesn't care about album covers, folks. <laughs> He's done two thousand radio shows, two thousand podcasts, and two thousand conversations with random Beatle fans on the street, and he does not care about album covers. So I'm gonna I'm gonna move on from that <laughs> very very. However, quickly. when Flowers in the Dirt came out as a box set, you had that whole disc of just Paul and Elvis demos. You know, no, I would no, love to, I'd right, love to hear right. a whole a whole I'd like to a whole disc of Paul and Eric Stewart demos. Give mm. me those. <laughs> Again, I said this on my last ep- episode with Nathan from the Deep Purple Pod. If I had a time machine, it would be to go back to when Paul McCartney and Lennon were children and just, you know, put a tape recorder in their room that just said as they sleep every night, record everything as a demo. Record everything as a demo. Record and then just make sure because like when they re-released um, Wings at the Speed of Sound and you get a version of She's My Baby that is leagues better than the album version. You get a heartwarmingly uh, sincere version of Silly Love Songs with Paul and Linda at the piano with Paul doing the most underrated McCartney thing, which is him doing his little steam train noise. That for me is better than most of his George Martin lush you know lusciously produced stuff I, I love all of that ten tend little just you and McCartney moments and there are moments on this album actually that were unexpectedly tender and personal but the majority of it like you say does lean towards what some people would describe to the adult contemporary side which is a, a phrase that I'd, I'd never really heard of up until recently, um, and then and then you look at what other people class as adult contemporary, and you can see why maybe Paul would not want to be in that rank, as it were. And if you look at his live shows in more recent years, there is definitely a focus on him being a, a rock act. You know, yeah. we need we need to have him do. 
nah, yep. on his own. That has to happen. If it doesn't, everything will collapse. Paul has to play that song. I love the addition of uh, Junius Farm actually to the set list recently. That's a, another another great rocker to give the show a bit of, a bit of thrust as well. Yeah, but you know, a lot of McCartney stuff of the seventies had more of an edge live that were poppy. Oh <laughs> I mean, yeah, oh yeah. Silly yeah, love yeah, yeah. songs, silly love songs, rocks. You know, for the Wings <laughs> Over America tour. It's it's heavy, isn't it? It's yeah. heavy. Yeah. But um, when Paul does a lot of these songs that in the studio are fairly tame live it's it's a different experience and a lot of that i found with say um you know venus and mars material or or wings at the speed of sound i always loved beware my love the studio version mm. but live it really kicks butt so uh, and letting go as well from venus and mars uh, mm. so but i wouldn't say because I was talking about adult contemporary when No More Lonely Nights came out and the early 80s. On Press to Play, I mean, the ballady stuff is basically footprints on Only Love Remains. Unless you count the CD with Tough on a Tightrope on there. But mm. uh, the rest of it is, is kind of edgy. Even the slower songs like However Absurd has an edge to it. A rusted, serrated edge <laughs> that cuts in me in twain. Uh, but we will get onto that one. One thing I, d- I did want to mention: when you go back and look at like the Wings Over America documentaries and stuff, you'll you'll see people addressing the fact that we had never had a rock star over the age of thirty at that point, and people were like, "Oh my God, Paul, are you getting too old for this?" Do you ever remember people talking about Paul being forty now and being able to do a rock album? Was there still this confusion of can these old timers still get it up, as it were? I think at that time in the 80s, you had certain veteran artists like Elton John, who was still doing so well. You had Eric Clapton still doing well. Uh, A lot of those 60s people were still charting and and having hits or having successful albums. And into the 90s, too. Elton John and Eric Clapton in particular had a lot of success on the adult contemporary charts with their singles. And Rod Stewart. Don't forget Rod Stewart was huge in the 80s and, and the 90s. So... You're dealing with people born in the 40s that were doing fairly well. So I don't think people looked at Paul as being too old then. Edge would not be the word I would use to describe press to play, but it was definitely rockier than I thought it was going to be. And the sound was definitely, I'll go with more aggressive than I've heard from Paul. Like I did did like where Angry was going in the first few seconds of that song. And then it kind of peters out a little bit. I feel like it doesn't quite commit and we're going to discuss this now. We're, we're going to move on, on to the songs. And my issue with a lot of the album is there, there are bits in every song that I like. There's either like a chorus I really dig or there's a, like a vocal mel- melody in the verse that I'm really attracted to. Or there's a lick or a drum beat. And yet there's another part of the song that I just objectively feel like I cannot stand behind this and look at it as anything other than a, a quasi ironic guilty pleasure. And there's only a couple of songs off this album that I would genuinely go back and recommend to other people. Those two songs, I'll, I'll get that out, out of the way right now. It's Pretty Little Head and Footprints. Those are the two songs that I think are standout numbers from this album. Mm. Ironically, the first track I'd heard from this, because, you know, I do try to stick to the format of the show that I'm not a completionist and I'm not, I don't have the entire catalogue to cross-reference and most of my cross-references will be looking backwards rather than looking forwards. And the first track I heard was Good Times Coming and feel the sun and i remember really digging that when i first heard it i was like okay 
if this is what the rest of the album sounds like, maybe I, I can kind of go for this. And those 80s heavy drum sounds, like like you say, are, are definitely there. You know, I could dig that, you know. I like Phil Collins as much as the next guy. Now that I've actually come back to the rest of the album and absorbed the whole thing, I actually rank that one much lower now. I think I think that's, a, that's quite a bland track and more of the silly stuff like Move Over Busker has a bit more a bit more zest to it. One thing I will I will say now, I have no idea why the last song is however absurd. It is absurd that however absurd is the final song on that album. Did you think that there was possibly a meeting where someone was like, Paul, so is the album going to end with Only Love Remains, the obvious song to end this album? And he kind of looked back over his back catalogue and went, ah, oh, Warm and Beautiful ended that album. One of These Days ended that album. Ah, oh, I can't really do it again. So I'm going to put However Absurd at the end. Like it, to me, it just screams that. I don't know about you. Now I'm very used to the album the way that it is, and I think However Absurd is a fine choice. I think that part of the reason why it was chosen, it's kind of got like a grandiose production behind it, and it is very beatly, melodically. So I think for that reason, that's probably why he put it on there. I don't know how much thought... I think sometimes people read too much into McCartney. I think he's very involved with the sequencing of the songs on his albums. But I don't know if he, he goes to each album and he says, well, I, I made Warm and Beautiful the last song on Wings at the Speed of Sound. I can't do that again, another ballad at the end. I don't think he thinks that way. There are times when I just feel like very often, if you look through his entire solo catalog, he makes the third song a ballad. Not all the time. It's either a ballad or some mid-tempo song. And I think, you know, it seems to fit but I, I don't think Paul, on the one hand, I don't think he likes to be formulaic. He definitely doesn't like to be that. But I don't think he thinks as much as you might feel. <laughs> I, I, I don't think he's saying, what, you know, treat her gently, lonely old people. Well, that re- wasn't really the last song of Venus and Mars, the Crossroads theme. But there's a ballad mm. right there. He probably wasn't thinking, well, I can't repeat that with however absurd. I just think that the production behind that, it's very majestic sounding. It has a very full, rich sound to it. Very heavy drums. I think he saw that as being a, a song to close with. But I also do feel that there are certain songs from Paul and from all the Beatles and their solo careers that are beatle And However Absurd is definitely one of them. He talked about that when the album came out. Mm. You know, like... Uh, People would say, well, you can't really do that. You know, you, you've done that already. You, you, you know, you're a Beatle. You, you can't repeat yourself. And he had said, well, if I can't do it, I earn the right to do this. Other artists try to sound like the Beatles. Why can't I have a song that's that's Beatley? So he was saying words to that effect with that song. And I especially like the lyrics because the lyrics are kind of silly. They're very stream of consciousness. Custom made dinosaurs. Oh, that makes me shrivel up in my skin I mean, the lyrics to that one I actually think are cod I am the walrus yes but that's the whole point it's stream of consciousness lyrics why does I am the walrus work and this doesn't because I am the walrus is a really good song that's why <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fucking amazing and I know we're probably going to have to bookend this whole chat somewhat with talking about however absurd if we're going to stick to some sort of chronological order so I'm not, I'm not going to try and, try and talk, talk about everything with that song now but 
I've never actually thought about it in the sense of it being beetly, and now I'm going to have to go back after this and and look at it with that lens, and I guess with that kind of bum bum, those huge orchestral swells and stuff, I could see how that has a bit of a an Abbey Road feel to it. But we'll bring it back to the start. We'll bring it back to the beginning with Stranglehold. I love that song. I love it. confused with that Ted Nugent song of the same name of course and for me I was just assaulted by the fact that this was going to be an an uber 80s Paul McCartney album you don't need to know that Hugh Padgham has been brought on to produce this one you know that immediately oh Paul's updating his sound there's that frenetic acoustic guitar the heavy percussive sound and the saxophone feels distinctly un-McCartney-esque this is not Howie Casey doing the classic McCartney saxophone sound this is definitely updated for the kids for the modern audience and that being said whilst i was kind of unimpressed by stranglehold the first few times i heard it like so many songs on this podcast after i play it a few times i can just feel like my outer defense is crumbling you know the walls are being breached the gates have been burst open and i i kind of feel like there is still enough of a, a, a thoroughbred McCartney DNA in the majority of this song to make it still a worthy, macatastic affair. And the idea of the song I do find kind of funny. Um, like, the idea of a stranglehold typically is, like, devoid of any positive connotations. And yet here, when Paul talks about a stranglehold, it's like this loving rock that's more akin to, like, this warm embrace than a stranglehold. And, you know, I can make all all sorts of stretches in logic as to what that's about. But I just thought that was quite an evocative little way to start the album. And the vocals, they do introduce you to this album very well. I do feel like this is a, a great little opening number to kind of let you know that this is kind of what the album's going to be about. Get ready for it. But where does it rank for you in terms of, say, the rest of McCartney's opening numbers? It's one of my favourites. I just love how the drums kick in like that. And unlike you, I really love the sax playing because I think it really, it just works in the song. That sax line was perfect for this song. I think the arrangement of it is absolutely fantastic. I, I'm not too crazy about when Paul starts off vocally with what sounds like falsetto. I'd rather have his powerful, natural voice than that. But it, the song does build. And I love the very simple bass line in there, which works so well. I think it's an extremely catchy song and really perfect as an album opener. Way back in the morning. 
we could say this time and time again. A lot of the success or lack of success of solo music has to do with the timing of it. Because certain songs, like if Stranglehold had come out in the 70s, it would have been a major hit. You know, it's mm-hmm. just his airplay was starting to dwindle around that time. Although, you know, Spies Like Us was a top 10 single the previous year. But I, I really wish Stranglehold was a, a major hit. I don't understand why Press wasn't a big hit, but that's another. We'll get to that when we go through all the songs. But yeah, overall, I'm probably way more into this song than I thought I was ever going to be when I when I tackled this mm. album. And going back and looking at what everyone on the Steve Hoffman forums has been, has been saying about this album and, and, on, and on various McCartney posts and YouTube comments and stuff like that, I guess going on from here, I had more of an optimistic outlook. But we shall press on, uh-huh. shall we say? Uh-huh. Um, because the good times are coming. Yes, yeah. they are. Yeah. Our second song, of course, is Good Times Come In, Feel the Sun. It's not a proper Paul McCartney album, Ken, without a song with a dash in it. You need that dash in it. You need two songs stitched together because that's what he does best. This would have been, like I said, the first song from Press to Play that I ever heard. The first song you would have heard for this album would have been Press, would it have? Yes. Yeah, yes, it, it was. That's the single that would have came out first. But this was the gateway drug for me to get into this album. And like I say, I probably overplayed it a bit too much. So, so maybe that's why I've got less of an affinity for it now. But both two songs here are a champion effort of Paul's ability to be like Dr. Frankenstein and stitch two disparate elements together and make them feel like they were only ever meant to be together. That it's it, Both are bouncy and fun. And they displayed the better side of what people would call adult contemporary rock. Maybe... A more stark difference between the two songs could have been potentially a little bit more powerful, something along the lines of like Winter Rose, Love Awake, or Uncle Albert, Admiral Halsey. But 
Overall, I actually find this one a really fun time, especially when they're chanting at the star and it feels full of promise and hope and it's got that inviting element that I kind of feel is on tracks like Mrs. Vanderbilt from Band on the Run that just feels like you're around the campfire with with Paul, especially with the waves in the background. It, It made me think of like the party at the start of Jaws before the before the drunk girl runs into the ocean. <laughs> Made me think of I don't know if you remember because this is this is before your time there, dude. So much in love by the Times starts off with the sound of waves, okay. and it's it's a, like a doo wop type song. And we're going to cut to a clip of that now. As we stroll along together, holding hands, walking all alone, so in love are we two that we don't know what to do, so in <laughs> what a fantastic clip. I'm glad I I'm glad I totally didn't hear that for the first time after we recorded <laughs> this. Where do you rank this amongst your two-part or multi-part McCartney songs, Ken? It's a definite favorite. I think this is an absolutely brilliant medley. And I think there is a stark contrast between the two songs because Good Times Coming is kind of like a reggae-ish feel to it. Mm, that that's a good way to put it, actually. I get that, yeah. It does harken back to a, a, a seaside woman-esque sound. Yeah, a little mm. bit. And Feel the Sun is more straightforward, 4-4 four, four beat, catchy chorus repeated over and over again, which you can't get out of your head after a few listens. And they just work so well together. That's the brilliance of McCartney's medleys, is how they all are seamless, you know, from Abbey Road to uh, Red Rose Speedway to those kind of medleys. I can't say that about the medley on Egypt Station, though. But definitely these two songs work very well together. Mm. And if you ever listen to the bootleg of uh, Press to Play, originally this medley was significantly longer, (laughs) the Feel the Sun part. And he had to trim that, which I think he did a very good job. And there was a whole other section uh, in Feel the Sun that he took out. So, Folks, uh, this is why we invite Ken on the show. Uh, to fill in the gaps that I could not possibly have hoped to have spotted. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and check that out. We're going to play a clip of that now as well. This is the extra part from Good Times Coming to the Sun. <laughs>
And wasn't that amazing, Ken? Oh my gosh, that was amazing. <laughs> Professional recorders, like I say, folks. You've mentioned Egypt, Egypt Station again. Going back to a point you made earlier about Paul's third song always being a ballad, wasn't it crazy that it didn't open with Come On To Me and then go into I Don't Know? It was so strange that it started with I Don't Know. I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a strange start to a Paul McCartney album. And it, and it almost feels like it should start with Come On To Me, you know what I mean? It feels like the uh, opening station literally moves on to like a chug-a-lug you're probably right, but then again, there are albums like uh, London Town was a slow song to start with. And the results speak for themselves, Ken, and the results <laughs> speak for themselves, I think. <laughs> and you're not a big fan of the medley, you know? Oh, I, I, I love the medley, I just don't think it flows. I think that there were three songs that he just strung together. Like, um, the thing that's frustrating about that medley on, on Egypt Station is that I love each song more as an individual song. Mm. I get that. You know, hunt you down, hunt you down. I wanted it to go on longer. It should have gone on for like four minutes mm. or four or five minutes, and then it just cuts right into, I've been taken from my younger brother. <laughs> you know, after a while, listening to it over and over again, you get used to it that way. Mm. So I guess it, to some degree it flows for you. And Naked I like also. I wish that had gone on longer. And it was cool to have the instrumental at the end there that, with the lead guitar playing from Paul. Oh. I love his medleys in general. I just don't think that this one flowed as well. Um, I think they were just three songs, different tempos all together. That it's, it's a little bit jarring to jump from Punch You Down into Naked, you know, like that. But by comparison, you listen to the songs on Red Rose Speedway, which all worked so well together. It was almost like he wrote them that way all four songs, or the ones on um, Memory Almost Full mm. flow so well together. But I still love those songs on Egypt Station. I think the Red Rose Speedway medley is possibly the most cynical one he's ever done. It does feel like the most made-to-order. And even though I know it's not true, it does feel like something that wasn't on the original acetate. It does feel like something that it was like, oh crap, you know, I can't really use Night Out, so I guess I'll just make up a big medley. In the same way that I feel like um, My Brave Face is about Linda's death, lyrically, even though she was alive at the time and there was no indication that things were going to go that way that quickly at all. One last little thing about Good Times Coming Feel the Sun. The wonderful little synths at the end that are overlaid with that guitar solo. It is so twinkly 80s. I find it so heartwarming. It is so beautiful that diddly 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 while the guitar is just shrieking over the end. Like when Paul does melodrama, it rarely comes off as cheesy as other artists doing melodrama. And it, it feels like he almost has a pass at being able to push certain emotive points further than other people might, as it were. And when Paul pulls it off in moments like that, I am overjoyed. The next song is a terrible name for a video cast, a fantastic name for a song. It is Talk More Talk. Hey, 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 <laughs> hey, hey. Street. 
This song is as experimental as, as the video cast, really, because this is, is something that I'm so interested in this song. I think this is possibly the most interesting thing on the album. I'm not saying it's the best song, but this is the one that I'm most excited to talk about. The stream of consciousness disembodied voices that bookends the song with a kind of extended spoken word segment is something like McCartney doing a another Carnival of Light or a Revolution 9 sound collage and... The idea of this in a Paul McCartney song that is supposedly on his most middle-of-the-road, bland and boring album is unexpectedly exciting. And it comes completely out of left field, and I did not expect it on this type of album. And it may have just caught me in a good mood, Ken, but I was totally taken with this stuff, you know. I was like, oh my god, this feels quite dangerous on a Paul McCartney album. This feels like something that... Not that he shouldn't be doing, but I was like, I'm glad he is. This is really cool. And, you know, along with Pretty Little Head later, both of these moments really rubbed my overly swollen McCartney 2 glands in my brain. Anything that reminds me of that album and anything that has a McCartney 2-esque sound, or at least in my own personal experience, reminds me of McCartney 2, I'm just drawn to it. And this spoken word stuff is fantastic. It's got so much that you can bring to it subjectively and uh, and artistically and poetically. And then for some reason, Ken, it goes into the most boring standard soft rock song. Oh, I was so upset. I was so fucking upset. I was... Oh, no. No. It went completely off the rails. And yet, look, the chorus is fun. Talk more talk. Chat more chat. Like... I'm fine with that, but it, I just felt so let down. I just felt so let down. It's too painful, Ken. It's too painful. The potential of this song to be something really weird and upset the mums and dads uh, with with those rising uh, string sections. Like I really thought, like we were going to go down the rabbit hole, and it 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 turns out the rabbit hole just goes to Paul's living room. Are you familiar with a song that Paul Simon wrote called Think Too Much? <laughs> <laughs> I think that you think too much. Oh. Right? So there, you know, this, there's such a danger in overanalyzing to the point where you don't let yourself enjoy the music. But um, Music's not about in- being enjoyed, Ken. It's about knowing facts and feeling superior to people. That's what music's oh, about. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I don't think of this album as middle of the road in any way. I think of it as you know, it's experimenting and it's got an edginess to it. And a song like "Talk More Talk," especially this is edgy. You're right. This is edgy. The first and last bit. That beginning, the the talking, the dialogue at the very beginning there that that gets woven in. It kind of reminds me a little bit of like uh, the broadcast. Mm. You know, going into "So Glad to See You Here," that kind of thing. But I love uh, the stream of consciousness lyrics. It's very much like I Am the Walrus that way. Throw out whatever comes into your mind. And uh, the words work. They flow very well. It's a lot of imagery. And that's all that that is. But I love the whole arrangement of it. And I love the production behind it. 
And I wish that you wouldn't keep saying it's so 80s because there's so much still that's out today that has that sound anyway. I don't mean to use the phrase 80s as like, you know, a horrendously abusive term because I don't. A lot, a lot of my favourite music comes from the 80s as well, but it's not mm. this particular sound of the 80s. It's more his competitors that were pushing him out at this point. So perhaps it's quite fitting that, that, that I don't resonate with this as much in the same way. But the stuff that I do like, the potential for symbolism and meaning... You know, like silly love songs where he's directly addressing his critics. A lot of the uh-huh. spoken word stuff in this sounded like reviews of Pipes of Peace, potentially. Half breaked, half thought words. You know, like it, it, a lot of that just felt like he was putting in directly provocative stuff that would make you think about that kind of thing. You know, this is the guy that did Ram, the guy who knew people were looking for John Lennon references and pairing it with the, the talk more talk middle part. Especially compared to good times coming, feel the sun. It's too jarring for me, Ken. It's too jarring. Okay. Well, a couple of things. First of all, uh, take it from an old geezer here. You have no idea how certain music is going to be perceived many years into the future. And even though this album is now 33 years old, we don't know if 50 years from now, this album might be looked upon as being one of his greatest albums. You just don't know. Just like nobody knew that uh, Ram would be so highly thought of. How dare you compare this album to Ram on this show, Ken Michaels? <laughs> dare you? No, I, I understand your theory and I completely agree with your working out, but it, I don't want to live in that future, Ken. I don't want to live in that future. But that's the nature of art, my friend. <laughs> You know, nothing stays the same forever. There are certain albums that, like Sgt. Pepper, was considered the greatest album of all time, and now there are a lot of people that take it down a few pegs. And say Revolver is better now. And, you know, we weren't thinking that in the 60s. We weren't thinking that in 1967 and in many of the decades that followed. You know, opinions change over time. And we have no idea. You know how widespread all the different opinions are about McCartney's solo career and what people's favorites are? It's not like everybody thinks Band on the Run is his best album. There are a lot of people who do, but there are some people who think Tug of War is his best. Some people think Flaming Pie is his best. You know, it, it runs the gamut. And nobody really knows the future and what people are going to think about anything. The Beatles didn't know when they were putting out this tremendous catalog in the 60s that people would be talking about it 50 years later and putting out remastered box sets with bonus, bonus material. Nobody could look that much into the future and know. I, I got to tell you one thing, and I might bring this up in other shows, but one of the programs that I was in, it's a podcast show called Fab Forum, which I did before Things We Said Today. There was a topic that I wanted to bring up, which was very important to me, mm. and that was that I noticed that every time there was some renewed interest in the Beatles because of some new release – whether it's Let It Be Naked or The Beatles One or whatever it came out, anytime Beatles albums reappeared on the charts in America, it was always their later albums. Yes. It was always Sgt. Pepper, The White Album, Abbey Road. You'd never see anything from Please Please Me through Revolver, except in 2009 when the remastered CDs came out. You'd never see the early stuff. And I brought up the question on the show, why is that? Is the later stuff so much better than the earlier stuff? And I had a lot of people write into me saying the early Beatles music is dated. 
Now, I, I honestly don't care whether it's dated or not. You know, there's nothing that's out today that sounds remotely like she loves you. It doesn't change the way I feel about she loves you. Mm. But some people think that music is dated. And so this whole idea of this is so 80s or disco is so 70s, all that doesn't mean anything to me because if I love the music then, I still do. And we have no idea. Maybe into the future, people will be cherishing the earlier stuff of the Beatles maybe more than the later stuff. You can't just assume everything's going to be the way it is now. Well, it's interesting you should say that because I went to a Beatles night at a local pub of mine and there was six or seven acts on and they all did about five or six songs each. And it was the early Beatles stuff that had everyone singing along the most and clapping along. And those were the songs that played to a live crowd in a small pub uh-huh. venue the best. And their later stuff, and perhaps this is because of a greater technical experience of the, of the band and being able to do great stuff in the studio. But whenever someone did Till There Was You or I'll Follow the Sun or even like really obscure ones like Thank You Girl, like the crowd would, uh-huh. the crowd would love in it. The crowd would really moving along to it. And hmm. I would have thought, you know, the long and winding road would have had people, you know, stood in in their tracks. But that was a track where people were get, were getting drinks at the bar. So it's a little mind boggling, you know. There, there are certain songs, like if you go to weddings and bar mitzvahs, "Twist and Shout" works. I saw her standing there works. Mm. You know, you don't really hear much of anything else from the Beatles at those kind of situations. But I'm just talking about record sales here. Oh, yeah. And it's something that I've noticed over the last several decades. It's black and white, Ken. That's why. It's because they're in black and white. And kids have this averse reaction to black and white movies. And they associate it with old and being rubbish. And it's the same reason why the album cover for this, for Press to Play, doesn't resonate. And, you know, you can try and get kids to watch The Third Man. It's just not going to happen. And since it's in black and white, I think subconsciously people think it sounds more dated than it, it actually is. That Danny, if you were to listen to it and you know you gave it a colourful album cover and said it was maybe released in the latter 60s, perhaps. Uh-huh. Also, they weren't quote-unquote cool Beatles by kind of modern edgelord hipsters, you know, because they weren't doing the drugs and the long hair and the beard and the peace and love. And, uh-huh. and they were probably a bit more corporate back then. And I think people just find it hard to be sold that image. And I don't disagree with people when, when they say that the, the earlier Beatles stuff is dated. And my best friend Tom Quee, who I've had on the show a lot, he hosts Alpha Metallica. He's absolutely aghast and gobsmacked that I pushed Abbey Road out of my top three and put A Hard Day's Night in. I absolutely am in love with The Hard Day's Night. I'm smitten with it, Ken. I'm smitten with it. And I'll be back. That's one of my favorite Beatle album closers now. It's just so beautiful. That's a shame. A Hard Day's Night. Oh, God. So it's, you know, 13 original songs. Most of them have so much energy to them. And the ballads are amazing, you know, with If I Fell and and I Love Her. You know, uh, you can't do that. Does it get much better as a rocker? You know? Yeah, but I'm glad to hear any different opinion. Because anytime somebody puts their favorite Beatle albums in, it's always the later stuff. You know, somebody please <laughs> put put in an early one in there too. It's, you know? it's, it's Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul's the best Beatle album because it's really? it's the transitionary album. People who like black and white Beatles standing still 
people can love it. And people who like the long hair druggy experimental Beatles can love it as well because you've got like Norwegian wood on there and stuff and it's just bleeding into e- to each other. And I'd say that that's the greatest mass appeal Beatle album. I reckon you could probably take it nearly any song off Rubber Soul and people would recognise it. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, it's still- maybe, maybe where you are. You just don't get it, man. You're just stuck. Okay, you, I guess not. You're in your you're in your echo chamber, man. I'm just a bloody American yeah. here. That's Bl- all. It another is. another bloody yank on this show. So so <laughs> so Paul has to sing "Speed Along the Highway." The highway. It's, Paul, Paul, it's a motorway. Thank you very much. That's too many syllables. We can make it to Mexico City. No, no, Paul, you want to make it to Manchester City. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of classic Beatles, though. We come on to Footprints. It's beautiful outside This is McCartney doing his Donovan-style finger-picking. And yet, despite the fact that it has somewhat become of a stereotype by this point in its own right within the Paul McCartney discography, my interest in the Paul McCartney acoustic number has only been rejuvenated by Footprints, Ken. I feel no fatigue, no lethargy when listening to this track. And one thing I did notice about this song rather immediately is how complete it feels when compared to songs, say, like Teddy Boy. And this is Paul writing a beginning, a middle, and an end, and there's a progression to it. And yeah. with and with Stuart as the co-writer, Mackett is encouraged to round off the story, as it were. Then maybe where like he maybe potentially would have would have left it. And just the story of the old man in the snow and the crumbs and the birds—it's all so evocative. And right. whilst they don't do like a wind effect the music itself generates a wind and you and you feel the cold and especially since we've had good times come in feel the sun it's nice to have a a a cold song to go along with such a nice warm and bright song as well this song is this is this is the absolute zenith of the press to play sessions i feel this is just so beautifully executed it feels like it could have come from any point in his career it, it feels that classic McCartney. And oh. one of the big mysteries for me with this song was what that haunting solo was in the middle, that kind of... And when you open the album, you, of course, you get the wonderful illustrations that Paul provides as to, right. as to how he wants the song to look. And I, and I got my magnifying glass out. I was like, right, let's find out what this solo is. And it's listed as pipe solo. So I don't know whether that's... Paul with some sort of rig literally playing pipes or whether it's 
like piped pan flutes or something like that, or maybe maybe it's the giant pipe on the on the front cover of the press of the uh, Pipes of Peace album. I don't know, but whatever it is, it's such a unique sound, and I found it so. Uh, alluring and attention grabbing the first time I heard it I was like what is this this is really cool yeah and the synths on the album those those wonderfully twinkly 80s synth there is no wink and a nod there they're really happening and they are beautiful I absolutely adore them that those wonderful little fairy dust moments that are sprinkled all throughout this song and it's not cheesy it it's it's, it's sincere it's earnest it's honest and it's a wonderful addition to the McCartney acoustic canon. Would you agree? Yes, yeah. I would. I think it's an absolutely gorgeous song, and it's a complete song, as you said. A lot of effort was put behind the lyrics. I love the imagery of it. That sprinkly sound that you're referring to kind of reminds me in some ways because this is a winter song mm-hmm. of Winter Rose. Yes, yes, yes. It makes me think of that talking about magpies makes me think later on he did two magpies mm-hmm. on the fireman yeah the whole production behind it is wonderful it's like one of those songs that you know, acoustic songs that fit like i said very often the third song is a ballad like somebody who cares or a bluebird or something that would have worked just as well as the third song here but it's it's so complete and it is a perfect song is it a highlight? Well, I think just about every song on this album is a highlight for me. But that's the way I feel about it. It's really a gorgeous song, and it's one of the many reasons why I wish Paul and Eric would have done more work together. I should point out, by the way, that in 1989, when Flowers of the Dirt came out and Paul was about to tour, there was a press conference in New York City, mm-hmm. and I got to ask him a question. And the question was, well, I said, first of all, was a statement. I said to him, I really love your work with Eric Stewart on Press to Play. And some people in the audience clapped along with that. And <laughs> rebels! Then I, then I, rebels! <laughs> and I think Paul was kind of taken aback, not expecting someone to mention Eric Stewart at all. And I said, do you have any any plans of working with him in the future? And he kind of brushed off the question. Oh. Said, no, he said, well, I had a good time working with Eric. We're good friends, and you never know. <laughs> This is now he's working with Elvis Costello, so why bother bringing up Eric Stewart, I suppose. But, yeah, I, I do like the collaboration between the two of them. I think they were very natural. Footprints is, is one of the best examples of that. Oh, Denny Lane, eat your heart out, my friend. Hey, you know, London Town, London Town had five songs that Paul wrote with Denny Lane. Do you ever get the feeling that Denny Lane possibly should have had more songwriting credits than maybe he got throughout the Wings yes. era? Like, Definitely. it's not like um, there was a, another similar book to um, Revolution in the Head just called Beatles Songs. I forget the author's name. And every single one had like a percentage meter as to like how he kind of right. broke, broke down each song. And like, I feel like so many Wings tracks should be like 90% Paul and at least 10% Denny on so many more than we could ever really appreciate. Obviously, I'm not saying Denny literally gave a line to each one, but to say that him, especially on Band on the Run as well, I find it absolutely shocking that Band on the Run isn't credited more to the, more to the three of them. No, I, I don't know about the 10% there because um, Denny brought a lot to the songs in terms of his harmony work mm-hmm. and... He brought a folk sensibility into into Wings. 
I think his contribution is far greater than people give him credit for. He was so part of the Sound of Wings, uh, along with Linda, who doesn't get nearly enough credit. But no, I agree with you there. And um, more so, you know, Paul. Paul, uh, I've interviewed Denny several times, and he told me Paul was always encouraging him to write more. So it could very well be that he just didn't have a lot of material at the time mm. during the Wings period, and more came out together on London Town. And when I, when I, I recently interviewed Lawrence Juber, who felt that uh, on Back to the Egg, that Denny was definitely underutilized on that album, because he only had again and again and again on there. So, um, yeah, I do wish those two had written more together. Mm. They put out some some great songs together. I love "Don't Let uh, Don't Let It Bring You Down" is one of my favorite Wing songs. Oh, beautiful! Which name. they wrote together. Yeah, it would have been nice to give Denny the "Getting Closer" lead vocal. Perhaps I reckon that would have been a very interesting way to start a Wings album with a Denny Lane vocal. Fuck you if if like fuck you if you don't like this band. Like we are doing it. I don't I don't care. I, I think and then and then put put cage on it and put Maisie on it I, that that that's my back to the egg but that's an episode for, yeah. that's another topic for a, for a future episode as well it would have been nice if just one single from paul the a side was a denny lane vocal <laughs> just one because now there's a lot of people who don't look at wings as being a real band because first of all all the hits had paul on lead vocals and he was let's face it he was the leader of the group. I'm just the bassist, Ken. I'm just I'm just the bassist. Simply the bassist. Everything revolved around him, but yet he did allow for the different members to write material and to sing them live. You know, if Denny did get five songs live at Wings Over America. Oh, if I saw a Wings show and Denny didn't do Go Now, I'd feel really let down. I know it's not a song that they wrote or any, or anything, but it's part of what I consider to be the Wings canon almost. Well, he, he has to do Time to Hide. Oh, for Time course. Time to Hide is classic. That's his letting go, you know, that heavy rocker, yeah. that unexpected one. And even though Jimmy had passed away, Medicine Jar is, is one of the essential wing songs. I love Wino Junko. I know it's a bit controversial to say, but I, I, I think Wino Junko is very fun. Ending side one, we've got Only Love Remains, uh, which is what I call the obviously Linda-inspired song from this album. If you take your love away from me I'm only gonna want it back I'll probably pretend I didn't see But knowing me, I'll want you back again And again This is a silly love song to some degree. Structurally, it's the classic McCartney ballad. It's not pretending to be anything else. And I'm not calling it a great lost masterpiece or anything, but it's certainly above something like Warm and Beautiful 
or treat her gently, lonely old people. I do consider this to be in the in the upper half of McCartney album closing ballads. Except that it's not an album closing ballad, it's only closing side one. And thematically, I know Ken's gonna disagree with me on this. I feel like this really should have ended the album. It 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 just it's got that classic McCartney classiness and crispness of of audio quality that I feel like would have brought this project to a wonderful close. Maybe a greater input from Eric Stewart on this song in particular. This is a McCartney solo song, quite clearly. Maybe a, an input from Stewart could have distilled this into something a little more unique, perhaps. And I can't bring myself to say too much about this one. I, I do feel it's a wonderful little ditty, but it, it, it is quite generic for what it is, and it doesn't stand out from the crowd all that much. And I feel like perhaps at the very start of this podcast, you know, years ago, if I would have looked at this album, I probably would have been drawn more towards that song because it's the most classic McCartney. But with everything that I've heard from Press to Play, this just falls into the mix for me. Um, It just doesn't stand out. Okay. um, Disagree. 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 Ken, please elaborate. Uh, (laughs) I definitely think that uh, Only Love Remains is possibly the greatest love song in Paul's solo career. It's another case of if this song had been released in the 70s, it would have been a major hit, I think. Um, It would have been the My Love of that time. And just like Footprints, it's a very complete song. The lyrics are just beautiful. But I think the greatest instrument in this song, as in many McCartney songs, is his voice. And his voice just soars especially uh, in the middle bits, you know, old enough and strong enough to stretch across the world. You know, his voice is so beautiful there. And the way that it ends with the ascending notes, the do-do-do-do-do, it's just so wonderfully produced. The arrangement is perfect. You know, my wife and I, when we got married, we had four wedding songs, one from each Beatle, and I was really really considering Only Love Remains, it, it was between that and Through Our Love, which I also think is one of his greatest love songs. But yeah, Only Love Remains is, is as perfect a love song as you can possibly write. And it's just a shame that it never was a big hit. And if you're, the first single that you release doesn't do very well, the other singles don't really have much of a chance. So Press didn't go any higher than, I believe, 21 in, in the U.S., so and then stranglehold was also a single here which didn't do very well but only love remains i i i love to death i can never hear that song enough and uh it's it's one of his great vocal moments too great melody it doesn't it's not like there's anything lacking there it's it's as perfect a song as you can get comparing it through our love is so good i cannot believe that you're considering that these two songs are in the same league through Our Love is so perfect. Like uh-huh. it, it touches that wonderful third-eyed lizard brain part of your of your consciousness that just understands classic Beatle-esque perfection. And I feel like the production in this one, uh, Hugh is almost trying to ape a bit of George Martin here. Uh, and it probably would have sounded better if George Martin had produced this song in particular. Perhaps it's highlighting for me in particular the transitionary phase from going from George Martin supporting his solo career to doing something new with someone else and perhaps maybe he can't quite do the same thing with someone else and the songs where he does something really different with someone else is what I'm really drawn to uh, and this is just a case of me just not particularly resonating with the material at all. We're going to move over to side two 
I'm going to turn over our vinyl copies, because I actually do have a vinyl copy of this album now, which I'm very happy with. And we have Press. single like you say it didn't light the world on fire again the words adult contemporary are circling around us like a whirlpool and i'm going to say right off the bat i don't think this is a bad paul mccartney song at all but this song doesn't even pose a risk to traffic it's that middle of the road i, f- I find this so inoffensively bland and by the numbers that i'm forced to think of paul being in some sort of self-induced weed coma during the Red Rose Speedway sessions when I think of this one. The music video is fantastic. It's a great idea. Paul McCartney hanging out with the normal people, with the, with the regular peasant folk. I think it's a great little thing of just watching people in terrible 80s fashion going, oh my God, it's Paul McCartney. Ken, I don't try to focus on lyrics too much in the first point of these uh, little reviews, but darling... I love you very, very, very much, and I'm relying on your touch. This might be the most lazy use of a placeholder lyric being used by Paul since he rhymed in with in for live and let die. And (laughs) so many of my friends are either writers or English teachers. And whenever I think about this, you know, I love you very, very, very much. I just picture a teacher going right see me after class use more interesting emotive different language you cannot use the word very thrice ken it's lazily cringy and it it puts me off this song in the way that some people are put off the other me by the dustbin lid line i know that as a, a supposed content creator and critic and whatever i'm supposed to be i should be mature enough to move past it I just don't see it happening. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to some degree, I I agree with you on this level. I don't like hearing very, very, very much. (laughs) Much much the same way in uh, Feed in the Clouds from Paul McCartney's uh, Bear Me Almost Full. What is is the line there? Um, I find it very, 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 very hard. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, he needs he needs, he needs he needs to try very 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 hard. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's weak at that moment. Uh, sometimes there are times when Paul does not work on the lyrics, but the strength of McCartney's music overall tends to be his melodies more than the lyrics. Oh, yeah. And I do kind of feel like what John Lennon said about Paul: he's a great lyricist when he wants to be. 
But the melodies carry his song so much and the hooks are so powerful that very often, you know, for someone like myself, I don't care as much about the lyrics. But, you know, I will admit he could have worked harder on this. And then there's the line, Oklahoma was never like this. I still don't know what it means. I don't think anyone has asked him what it means. You know, I don't know if he if he means the state of Oklahoma was never like this. And or, the, then if or, the, did, or the play, well, yeah. <laughs> or the musical, you know, you know. <laughs> what does that mean anyway? <laughs> I wonder if he owns the rights to Oklahoma now. He probably does. He probably owns. No, he does not. He does not. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been uh, clever, though, to sneak in titles of songs and and the musicals that he owns. You know, write a song called Annie. I gave one to Michael. It was, it was like, Annie, are you okay? You know? <laughs> but Press is one of those songs that's catchy as hell. And I love it every single time I hear it. I do have to put up with the, you know, the lack of effort in the lyrics at times. But I still love the whole arrangement of it. And um, I, I honestly don't understand why that wasn't a big hit. It's because Eric Stewart's not on the song. It's because it's because Eric Stewart didn't help write the song. It suffers in the in the same way as Only Love Remains and Talk More Talk. These bland generic songs, they're all the ones that don't have Stewart on for me and they're the ones that seem to have the least zest to them. Uh, I don't agree. I still it, enjoy it, you know. I look at the whole overall record and I enjoy what I'm hearing. And, you know, Name any other single prior to Press that sounded like Press. The fact that it sounds different for a McCartney song makes it exciting for me. You know, and we saw seeds of it in Spies Like Us with more of the heavy drum sound and all of that and the synthesizers. And this is moving on from there. And I love the whole guitar intro, which I found to be rather interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. I, I still enjoy that song. And it's one of the many that I wish had been bigger hits. Really, from this album on, he never had uh, another top 10 single until with Kanye West and Rihanna. Yeah. And the, the first the first singles of his albums, like, like like this one or My Brave Face or The World Tonight, they should have been much bigger hits than they were. But, you know, it started with this one. It's not that Paul was ever getting worse. Perhaps it was just that interests were changing, stars were changing and... People were filling in the void that the Beatles left, and it's just natural evolution. You know, things things adapt or they live and let die. <laughs> well, the Beatles as solo artists filled every uh, every desire I could ever hope for, and continuing with more great Beatle music. And not only that, there's four times as much solo music as there is Beatle music. So there's so much more there to appreciate. So I don't necessarily feel the way that you just said. I cannot believe that Give My Regards to Broad Street fulfilled any desires in anyone, but that's what makes us different people, Ken, I suppose. I wouldn't have picked that album, you know, to represent Paul, but, you know, that's... I've, I've been seeing, because now it's another anniversary, it's 35 years since Broad Street, and people are all saying the same thing. Great album, lousy movie. <laughs> I am going to so, edit uh, this. I'm going to edit this and make sure that I say that, you know... I can, I can definitely make you say with some deep fake technology that it's your favorite album, especially with 2000 <laughs> shows as well. A good deep fake bot can listen to all 2000 of your shows now. And oh, I'll be able to write any old Paul McCartney based dialogue I want. That'd be, that'd be okay. very fun. <laughs> now, let's, let's get on to the cream with Pretty Little Head. 
Uh, Ken, this is the best song on the album. I really like this song. Uh, I'm just going to let you talk about it. Again, it's it's Paul moving into the sound of that time. And many years ago, I, I started thinking after hearing a Peter Gabriel song that Pretty Little Head would have fit very well on a Peter Gabriel album. It's got very much all that electronic sound to it, the drums, the synthesizers. I love all the chanting and the background, the Hillman part. It's so unlike mm-hmm. anything else that Paul had done before with a lot of production. Whereas, you know, McCartney too, with it, its experimentation was still, you know, not as layered in terms of production. This is very full production behind Pretty Little Head. And it really is Paul growing as an artist, in my opinion, because he's he's taking in all the different sounds of the time and making it work for a song that melodically and structurally is very different from anything else he's done before. Anytime that an artist that I love does something that's radically different, you know, I don't really care as much for formula artists and Paul is anything but that. Although there are some formula artists I do like. I like the ones that stray away from formula. And Paul always has a habit of mixing things that are new for him a little bit with stuff that you're used to hearing. He hardly ever just shocks you completely. You're not going to get a full album of Pretty Little Head. An album of Talk More Talk and Pretty Little Head and calling it McCartney 3 would have been right up my alley. And I think it probably would have done better with well, the audience maybe, at, the, at the time. the electric arguments is that. Maybe. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah. Twin Freaks is better than both Fireman albums, though. I am just going to say that now. I think, I think we spoke about this last time. I love Twin Freaks so much. That's such a fun album. I like it too, but it's a different type of album altogether. I don't know. I just like the fucking audacity of it. I think it's shocking. I love the chutzpah of it to take all these songs and go, right... Yeah, we're going to do something completely different with all this stuff that you love and somehow still... Like, I couldn't imagine someone re-editing Goodfellas and and then changing the plot of it somehow entirely and it still being a good movie. And yet, with the with the art form of music, he's been able to reappropriate his own work, which is such an interesting concept. But going back to Pretty Little Head, anything that reminds me of McCartney 2, like I say, is going to go down well with me. And you are right, there is nothing like this that McCartney had done really before, or really kind of since, because since, this is so dark and all-consuming, you know, there's there's a thick molasses to this song, and I love songs that build up each instrument individually, like the uh, drum loops coming in at the start, and then like that little bit, the moment I heard that, I was literally transported off to a magical world. I was like, I am so willing to go wherever this song is willing to take me. And the whole sound is indescribably cool, especially, again, when it's come on an album with stuff stuff like press. Like, the fact that it's come after press, I think, makes this song hit all the harder, personally, just just because of the the stark difference between them. It reminds me of something like going from Revolution 9 to Good Night or something like that. Yeah, right. The main hook of this song, I thought for the longest time, was nurse to major, nurse to minor. And I thought it was like something about like medical attention and like worrying about their pretty little head, but it's Ursa Major, Ursa Minor. And for those of you out there who don't know, those are two constellations of stars in the sky, uh, and Ursa being the Latin for bear. So 
and anyone can look up tonight and hopefully you might be able to see Ursa Major and Ursa Minor and then you'll be able to shout Hillman, Hillman <laughs> I love songs where you listen to it and you have to work out the lyrics for yourself and then you go and look at the lyrics and you're like oh I got this entirely wrong I got this entirely wrong and we've spoken about stream of consciousness on this episode a couple of times now and how Paul was kind of doing that for several of the songs and why songs like I Am The Walrus work for some people and why other songs on this album might not work. For me, this is effortlessly executed. I was actually quite shocked to find that Stuart was involved in the lyrics for this one. I don't know how you can do two stream of consciousness style lyrics and merge them together. The fact that they've done that is an incredible achievement, even for it to sound this good and sound like one single piece of authorship. Mm. I really have to give them their their uh, credit there. This is the only song on the album where I wouldn't have thought Stuart was on it because it is so mad Professor McCartney too, you know, doing Check My Machine and Front Parlor and Frozen Japanese and stuff. And yet Stuart is here with the writer's credit, so that's endlessly interesting for me, really. Actually, Talk More Talk was written just by Paul. It wasn't the two of them. But I have a question I want to ask. I want to throw this at you since you're so impressed with Eric Stewart here. How would you have felt if it didn't have so much of that 80s production? It was more stripped down, a simpler production. How would you have enjoyed Pretty Little Head the same way or Talk More Talk? You've got to pick your poison, you know. Uh, this is definitely a combination of Hugh Padgham, Eric Stewart and Paul all coming together and making something that would not have been able to be made at any other time in any other place by anyone else. And so you've got to appreciate it for what it is in that sense. And I totally can justify the entire existence of the rest of the album just based on Pretty Little Head. I really can. I like that song that much. It's in my top 20 Paul McCartney songs of all time. I think it's an underrated classic along the lines of Goodnight Tonight and Beware My Love. It is the song that I will never skip. And I always look forward to side two because this is definitely the peak of this side as well. Very cool. Glad you said that. (laughs) Time to move over, pretty little head. Time to move Uh over because it is move over busker now.
this one, I kind of feel like whenever I was writing about it, I, I kind of wanted to hate on it more than I maybe did. And again, the phrase guilty pleasure is such an easy thing to say. But I do find myself singing along to this one. I do. I do find myself kind of pretending to, to hit the cowbell and groove along to it. And it's got that incredibly melodramatic guitar riff as well. Just like, it's so bold and, and in your face. And they're clearly having a right laugh. And that is infectious. You know, a lot of the time you do worry that if they're having fun in the studio, a la Runrose Speedway, they're probably not going to create an amazing end product. But this to me is a great window into what the album would have been more like. Again, as you just mentioned earlier, if there was more of a stripped down just rock sound, if there was just more of a rock al- album, and I don't feel any of the same resentment I do say t- uh, towards the next song, but we'll get onto that when we get to it. Ken, I'm going to guess once again that you really, really, really like this song. Yeah, but I'll tell you one thing. If you go into the full CD of Press to Play, you'll find one thing I didn't like. <laughs> but uh, of the album itself, Move Over Busker is a fine rocker. It's kind of like in the tradition of, say, Junior's Farm, mm. with more of an 80s sound to it. And uh, I love that guitar line that you were just singing so very effectively. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and, and the harmonies that go along with that as well are brilliant as well. Yeah, and the edginess in Paul's voice when he's shouting, that's something that's just so alluring for me. I love that kind of voice. In a, in a lot of ways, it, it, Move Over Busker could have fit the Russian album. You know, if there were you know, an original song that was allowed that was all 50s rockers, or maybe even a Run Devil Run type album, it kind of fits that, yeah, that sound. Yeah. You know, to it. Um, fun with the lyrics here. Good, edgy song. You know, uh, I like it a lot. It does sound like them both tapping into their in, their influences, their early rock and roll loves, probably more so than any other point on the album. But yeah, Move Over Busker, not, not too much to say about this one, just because any points that I have a negative about it are kind of moot and and irrelevant, really. It's it's just fine. It's fine. There's nothing particularly wrong with it, nothing particularly to write home to the family about Onto the penultimate track, Ken, and I suddenly feel like Waldorf and Sadler from The Muppet Show, because this song does actually make me annoyed, irked, furious, seething, and frustrated. Of course, this song is angry.
The only thing I like about this song is the little Rah! at the beginning of it. And maybe a bit of that boo-doo, boo-doo, boo-doo. Everything after there, though, it, it just goes downhill fast. And uh, there is nothing worse than Paul trying to rock out and fail miserably. This is a crash and burn for me. This 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 is where the Paul is dead car crash actually happened. Uh, this is where he blew his mind out in a car. He didn't know he didn't notice that the times had changed. And just going back to London Town again, I can't help but feel like this is a bit like I've had enough. Where Paul is trying to write a song that connects with the common man. Like, yeah, I can write songs about how we all love, and I can write songs about how we do the same with the opposite emotion. This is Paul doing the anti-love song. He's angry. And unless Paul is actually writing about something that he's really angry about, that isn't backed up by some sort of real slight or trauma, like we saw across Ram, for example, it just comes across as fake. And I know how you mentioned earlier that people were possibly ascribing this song to John Lennon. I do not believe that for one second, just look at the final product of the song. The closest thing that Paul would come to like writing a really negative song about Lennon in this way might be something like Best Friend from the Red Rose Speedway sessions. Like, oh, you know, you make me mad, but you're the best friend I've ever had. Like, that's about as angry as Paul really can get in the same way that when he writes Give Ireland Back to the Irish, he's like, Great Britain, you are tremendous. <laughs> it's like, like, come on, Paul, you're not that angry, are you? And... I just feel like there's an artificial wheeziness that stops this song from from being something like a too many people because the rant just falls flat for me. Like I said, you think too much. <laughs> <laughs> you think you gotta, you, too you, you've gotta, much. <laughs> uh, you've got to give your brain a rest there, Sam. But uh, but angry is a song that uh, this particular version. I love. I never cared for the remix of it with the brass, which I didn't think worked well at all. I think stripped down, just Paul, Pete Townsend, and Phil Collins, what a great trio that is. Um, And it really has an edge to it. The thing is, you know, there are times when I think Paul is really forcing himself to be a rocker, you know, trying to prove himself as a rocker. He doesn't have to prove himself to me. He can rock with the best of them. And I love the whole lyrics of it. What the hell gives you the right to tell me what to do with my life? How do you know he's not directing that at somebody? And I'm also not someone that, that looks for Paul to write songs about John Lennon <laughs> in his music, like you were saying before, even though, you know, on Ram, he did too many people and everything. There are fans that try to read so much into song lyrics. Uh, but I do remember, like I said, before Press to Play came out, there was some reports that Angry was about john lennon and sometimes you can just come up with a whole bunch of words that flow together well and you figure let's expand on this it doesn't have to mean anything or be about something specific going on in his life oh you've clearly never been to one of my english literature classes when we did the show on pipes of peace remember wouldn't it when when i said wouldn't it be nice if we went into a new album without all the baggage of everything that paul mccartney is you know, and without making comparisons to anything else, you know, to say, here's the new album. What do you think of it? <laughs> yeah. Is it possible to do that? One of the best ways for me to ever listen to an album is to get onto a train and turn my Wi-Fi off and then just listen to it that way. And I've just me and the view. 
Um, we've already spoken about however absurd. I'm tempted just to edit it in here, but again, another snarky Muppet critic here, you know, oh, however absurd, it is, it is absurd. don't particularly like this being at the end of the album i think it brings it to a bit of a, a grinding halt for me actually i was like oh we were actually doing quite well bringing this to a close and then it's a bit of a <laughs> i feel like the jalopy's just run out of petrol a bit and it's just come to a, a grinding halt and again cod i am the walrus cod you know mccartney passion and sentiment with all the production techniques and flourishes but nothing connects with me and the lyrics don't help Custom-made dinosaurs is a phrase that, like I, like I mentioned earlier, just just rubs me the rubs me the wrong way. Especially being such a dinophile, I know I'm not meant to dissect such absurdist lyrics, and the fact that the lyrics aren't there almost adds to the vocal melody and is a type of artistry in its own self. I get I get the concept, I understand it, I know what I'm supposed to take away from it, but I just don't. I I, I cannot engage with it on an artistic level, and therefore it feels very shallow and empty for me. There's just something memorable about it. Again, it suffers from a bit of that only only loves remains syndrome. And this is a song that's trying to be epic and trying to be, you know, the big end to the album. And this is probably the only time on the album where I would actually say that the criticism that it might be a little overproduced is warranted. But this would be the only, the only, the only time. I don't know. I, I really disagree on that level but then again we can agree to disagree but uh, i love the production on press to play overall and um we were talking about however absurd and that it's very beatly especially to me that the middle part could you go into that could you explain that for me because I'd, I'd, well, I'd love some context for that certainly the um the middle eight or the bridge the something special between us yeah. and you had strings in the background that that was very beatly for me I just think melodically it really works as as a Beatles song. You know, I did a whole thematic set on every little thing on solo songs that are Beatlesque, and I think it really works. So hang on, on you stole one of my future episodes years ago. I don't know how you did that, Ken. And we didn't even know each other. Oh, great! Great minds think alike. Clearly, obviously. Yeah. Let me let me ask you. I want to ask you something about this whole stream of consciousness lyrics. I mean. 
don't get me wrong. I am the walrus. I, I love the song to death. But when you hear lyrics that just flow together well, that's just imagery. It doesn't mean anything. What does crabble locker, fishwife, pornographic priestess mean to you? Why, why is that acceptable and lyrics of however absurd a talk more talk or not? Right. You've already got the established supposition that John Lennon is the wordsmith. You know, he is the malampropism guy. He's the Spaniard in the works man. And that, that is impossible to separate from a song like I'm the Walrus for me. And I'm the Walrus just feels a lot more subversive. Even if it's not trying to be, I feel like there has been... I don't, I don't care what Lennon says about trying to annoy English teachers and stuff. I do feel like there was care put into that song. Like, having a song with the words pornographic priestess and boy, you've been a naughty girl, you've let your knickers down. That is intentionally provocative and sexual on some sort of... Not even subliminal level. It's just throwing images at you that are instantly provocative. Policemen standing standing in a row. Ho, ho, ho. He, you know, all of... I, I just feel like every single image that he throws at you with such a, you know a machine gun rate of fire so many of them land it's like it, it's like a, um, a comedian that just does one-liners like they're all just funny little jokes each themselves and when McCartney does it it feels like Arthur Fleck in the new Joker film doing his stand-up it just it didn't it doesn't have the same zest or pep to it and I kind of just feel like it's a style of songwriting that maybe Paul just isn't that good at I just, I just feel that way. I don't, I don't agree. But you know, on this very subject of "I Am the Walrus," there is a moment in Pete Shotton's book where he talks about the song. And at the time, John was amused that there were classes in school mm. where people were analyzing Beatles songs and really just coming up with their own definition, their own meanings, their own interpretations that have nothing to do with what the Beatles might have intended. And so with Iron the Walrus, he said to Pete, let the buggers figure this one out. So it could very well be that he just got together all these words that flowed well. There may not have been as much thought as you think into the lyrics. But he did that intentionally so that people would, would be analyzing Iron the Walrus and trying to figure out what it means when it may not have meant anything. Well... Monkberry Moon Delight is an example of a, a stream of consciousness nonsense lyric song that works yeah. very well with Paul, but it's got the backing of the real fire of the Beatles breakup behind it. It's got that McCartney passion factor that makes things like Band on the Run the great album that it is. Like when he's got uh, you know some irons in the fire, you know a, a hot poker up his ass that's pissing him off. He he makes incredibly good content, but you know. He seems to be living quite a good life, and he seems to be pretty chuffed with himself. And that doesn't create the conflict and the drama that might be necessary for me to engage with the material on some level. And again, with Monkberry Moon Delight, I feel like every single line that Paul throws hits and lands with effortless grace. Uh, that that just doesn't, with however absurd. Mm. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I, I love it all. A piano up my nose. That's so good. So that works, and the yeah. works of, of yeah. Talk More Talk, instrumentation, analog, Gretsch, that doesn't mean... What if those same words were in Monk, Three Moon, Delight? You'd probably love them. But, you know, a, a lot of your feelings, just a lot of your feelings about songs are due to the fact that you heard them at a certain time in your life. 
Oh yeah, I know. I am. I'm aware of the Marxist Im- Im- implications that we're all affected by everything that's happening to us, consciously or subconsciously. Um, and sometimes it can even just become. It can come down to a feeling that you can't even describe for no reason. Like, I do not know why I think Cage is one of the best songs from the Back to the Egg sessions. I really don't. And Monkberry Moon Delight has the same kind of unexplainable positive quality and. However absurd, just has the has the yin and yang of that. You know, it's the opposite side of the coin. Yeah, Cage to me has a lot of beetly moments in it. Definitely, yeah. You know, and I could certainly see. You know, in this world of how would you change the albums as they came out based on what were B sides or songs that were not released at the time, which a lot of people did with Red Rose Speedway. Um, you know, you can have so much fun with this kind of an idea and Cage. I could certainly, I, I definitely think Cage should have been on Back to the Egg. Oh. Um, but then again, you have to ask yourself, what would you have taken off? Oh, it's, so. a, it, it's a tricky one because you've got to get Good Night Tonight and Daytime Nighttime Suffering on there potentially as well. Um, mm. Oh, no. And then Denny, Denny might lose his only song. Ken, he might lose his only song on the album. <laughs> oh, and it's likely it's going to happen because, I mean, do you think I'm going to feel a shred of regret? kicking again and again and again off to fit on good night tonight i'll feel nothing ken i'll feel nothing with my stone oh you need you need again and again and again you got to have some denny representation my love oh it's fine it's fine It, it ain't no time to hide it ain't no deliver your children i'll tell you that that's true that's true right ken on this show i do something called cannon fodder where I pick two or three songs. I'm going to say three because it adds a bit of tension because there's two of us and it means we might have to jostle over the third place. We're going to pick a song each to add to the canon of Paul McCartney and that'll be added to the Spotify playlist that is constantly being updated for this show. My choice is going to... I'm going to play it safe with Pretty Little Head. What song would you like to be preserved in ice from this album? It's only one song? Well, you're going to pick one song, and then we're both going to decide the third one. Okay. Well, because I think it is the greatest love song of Paul's solo career, I would pick Don't do it, Ken! Don't do it! I have to. (laughs) I want everyone to know Only Love Remains as well as I want them to know My Love, which is, you know, the biggest love song hit of Paul's solo career. Ladies and gentlemen, Ken's views do not necessarily uh, are not necessarily in line with those of the producers of the show. His views are entirely his own. Um. <laughs> right, you're gonna have to meet me halfway here, Ken. Are we gonna are, are we are we gonna go with talk more talk or footprints? Maybe uh, good times coming, fill the sun. I know, I know you want, I know you want press, but I'm not giving you press. I'm not giving you press. No, now, I, my second choice would be. Pretty little head. Okay, so that because it's so different, yeah. you know. And I love playing songs on my radio show that when people hear it for the first time, they're not going to think it's Paul McCartney. Oh, dude, this is in my top five. I put this on for my friends to to trick them into think they're not listening to Paul McCartney. So you whack this on, you put on Check My Machine, you put on Secret Friend. Uh, you put on Back in Brazil and a bit of Frank Sinatra's Party. And you might be able to trick someone into accidentally liking Paul McCartney. It's it's something I've been working on for many years to mild success. 
uh, mild okay. success. So for the third song, I'm going to give you the option of Talk More Talk or Footprints. Uh, hmm. Well, I have a video cast called Talk More Talk. I know! Should I, should I, know. I, should I show my allegiance to, to the song there? But Footprints is such a gorgeous tune. I'll probably go with Footprints over you, Talk More Talk. You might have to change the name of your pod, of your video cast now, man. Uh, hello, uh, hello, and welcome to the Footprints video cast. <laughs> yeah, people will connect uh, that at the, with that title as a Paul McCartney podcast, definitely. Oh, I cannot believe that you actually did every little thing as your title before, Talk More Talk. It, 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 it seems like a that would have been the one the one to go for but obviously um would, would did your show already start coming out before the song was released i'm guessing uh oh yeah every little thing i've been doing actually since 1982 it wasn't called that then it only became every little thing when i started working at xm radio hmm. so try to remember when that was 2005 i think it was but uh, that's the appropriate title, and that includes Beatle and Solo, whereas Talk More Talk is primarily a solo of Beatles. Oh, yeah, but I, tr- I try to talk about Solo, Paul, but it, it always ends up coming, coming back to the Beatles. It always does. It always does. Well, that was the beginning of it all. And what a beginning. That was Press to Play. Overall, I'm going to say, nowhere near as shockingly divisive as i thought it was going to be based on the comments that i've read and based on what all the literature says because even most authors aren't aren't as kind to this in a in a kind of uh, retroactively way as you might think there hasn't been much revisionism for this album i don't see that happening in the near future when it does happen it'll come from a completely left field and unexpected source i am sure perhaps you know pretty little head might get featured in the soundtrack to a film one day and that sparks interest and people might come back to it you never know I believe my guest, Ken, quite likes this album. Um, Would you like to offer your final thoughts on it, bro? I think it's a brilliant album, and I think that uh, every McCartney fan should explore it with an open mind, without thinking that the 80s was something so terrible. There's a lot of variety within the album. I love the production, the melodies, the whole mix of it all. I'm not in any way against 80s production and, and what Hugh Padgham brought to it. Um, and by the way, we didn't mention this, although we really should. Um, the bonus tracks on the CD, mm-hmm. uh, T- "Tough on a Tightrope," is one of, is a favorite of mine. It's one of my favorites of of all the bonus material on, on Paul's albums. It is, and fun, that yeah. was a McCartney and Eric Stewart song. "Right Away" is the only song on the CD where I love the song, but I didn't like the production on it, the way that it kicked in with the with the harmonies and the heavy drums. Not that I don't like heavy drums, as I've said on this show, but I really love the other version that came out, which was the B-side to uh, Press, and I like that version better. I'm starting to like this version a lot more now, <laughs> surprisingly the other version of It's Not True. And um, right away, I like a lot. It's got a jazzy feel to it. Sort of led to uh, maybe the the jazziness of distractions, in my Mm -hmm. view. And in addition to all that, the Krita Kroor of the Press to Play sessions (laughs) is the song Hand Glide, which is an instrumental, which was on the 12-inch of Press. And it has a very new age sound on it, is very, very different for Paul. I love the fact that he did that. 
it's another one of those songs. Well, obviously, the fact that it's an instrumental, you would know it's Paul McCartney because there's no vocals on there. But if you heard that song, you wouldn't necessarily think that's Paul's own recording. And it's really cool, Hand Glide. It's something to really check out. Something that, you know, is out of character, though it shouldn't be because Paul's music is all over the place. But sometimes his most experimental stuff are songs that end up as bonus tracks on CD singles or B-sides. And some of that material you might like more than what's on the album. Uh, Ken, I do not dare risk another digression because I've never heard you come remotely getting close to being bored with these conversations. And I, I know you too well now. You've done 2,000 shows. Unfortunately, Ken, despite me always being in a complete awe of your presence on this show, I'm going to have to bring things to a close. You can find all of Ken's stuff down below. You can find links to every little thing, talk more talk, and of course the things we said today, which is a podcast that this podcast is incredibly indebted to, and check out all of, all of their latest episodes. They actually upload stuff with a great deal, uh, a greater amount of frequency and professionalism than this show ever does. So yeah, go <laughs> check them out. Ken, thank you so much for coming back on. Thank you for coming back on and doing this episode. I'm glad we actually managed to stick to the format. Hey, invite me again. It's been a blast. I enjoy talking with anyone that really takes the time to listen awesome. to the music. Thank you so much. Everyone, check out all of Ken's stuff. But hey, if you're listening to this show, you probably know you probably knew about Ken already. Um, and you know that I'm punching above my weight here. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you all so much, folks. This has been Paul or Nothing. Denny Lane has probably been playing us out already. Peace and love, peace and love. Keep listening to Paul. Play us out, Denny.